Philippians chapter 3, New Living Translation, starting in verse 17. Paul writes and says, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I've told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things and they think only about this life on earth. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. He's gonna take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this glorious passage before us. We ask that you would give us understanding. And Lord, that you would enliven and embolden our hearts, that we'd be more alive for you than ever before, that we would be responsible, vibrant citizens of heaven, living on mission in this world. Give us a right perspective of these things. Lord, we ask together that you'd please anoint me to communicate your truth. I don't want to cloud it or mess it up in any way. We want your voice to be loud and clear in our hearts and minds. And we trust that by your spirit, you would make it transformative for your glory in the world. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the hinge on which, on which this whole text pivots is that phrase in verse 20, we are citizens of heaven. That's kind of the crux of the passage. We are citizens of heaven. And I've been meditating on that phrase this week. And yesterday as I was studying and meditating on it, I just, I got really excited about it. And it was just coming to life for me. And I was just thinking about all these things. And so I tweeted it. As I often do things I'm excited about, I'll, I'll post them on Twitter and on Facebook, both of those. And uh, I did that, and I put it out there, just, we are citizens of heaven, dot, 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 no explanation. And then one lady tweeted back, and if, this, if, if you don't understand this kind of language, I apologize. I don't know what to do for you. But one, one lady <laughs> tweeted back, and she said this. She said, can you please explain that? How can we be citizens if we aren't there yet? That, that was poignant. In one way, she, she didn't understand the biblical reference there, and that's okay. We often don't understand those things. No, no problem with that. But, but in another way, what she said was really kind of nailing it. That's really the question. How can we be citizens of heaven now in light of the fact that we are not there yet? That realization brings to the forefront this fact, that the Christian life is one of tension, isn't it? On, on lots of levels and lots of ways, the, the Christian life is one of tension. It's certainly a life of peace, uh, of joy, of contentment, but simultaneously and by design, it is a life of tension. You can't escape that in scripture. The, the, we live in this tension of, of living in this world being a part of this world, but yet not quite being a part of this world, of also living for the world to come. There's a real, tangible, palpable, sometimes difficult to deal with tension that that creates. But what I want to say to us is that that tension is good. 
Tension is by design. That tension is good and it does something in us. And it's all over the New Testament, as I said. Think back to some of the things Paul said in chapter one. Look in verse 21 of chapter one. Paul says, for to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. See that tension? For me to live is Christ, but dying's even better. Tension, verse 22. But if I live... I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I don't really know which is better. Tension. Verse 23. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go be with Christ, for that would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. This palpable tension between Paul's desire to go be with Jesus, because he just couldn't think of anyone else to be with, and yet to remain on and be on mission for Jesus because he couldn't think of anything better to do. And what, what really exacerbates or, or brings to the forefront again this, this tension in our lives is when we have a strong realization of the fact that we are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of heaven. Now let's try to understand that. About a hundred years before Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians, almost exactly a hundred years, Julius Caesar was assassinated in Rome. Maybe you saw the movie or read a book. Julius Caesar was assassinated in Rome. And, and after his assassination, there was a civil war in Rome, okay, between uh, the conspirators, those who were responsible for his assassination, and the triumvirate, which included men like Antony and Octavian and some other guy I can't remember. And, and so there was this civil war, who was going to take control of Rome? And interestingly enough, the battlefield for it was in Philippi, where this church is located. It was, it was a bloody battle between Romans and Romans, and it took place in northern Greece in a city named Philippi, where the church that we're studying about was located. Now, after the battle, by the way, the triumvirate won and defeated the conspirators. After the battle, their intention was to return to Rome and, and take over the Roman Empire and see that everything began to go well. But what they didn't want to do was take a bunch of war-torn, blood-saturated, gnarly soldiers back to Rome. They just didn't think that'd be good for the culture, for the city. There was enough going on in Rome that was difficult. And so the plan that they came up with was, look, soldiers, we will give you guys a bunch of land here in northern Greece in the area of Philippi. You settle here and we'll make it a Roman colony. So Philippi became a Roman colony and they were now Roman citizens living in Greece. Tension, okay? They're, 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 they're not Greeks, they're Romans. But now they're Roman citizens, allegiant to Rome, but now they're living in Greece, northern Greece, specifically Philippi. Now, when Paul says that we are citizens of heaven, what many of us, including myself, immediately think is, oh yes, and oh good, I can't wait to go be in heaven. I just want to get away from the place and get out of here and just go to heaven. And that may be a true and good sentiment and feeling and, and even theological idea, but I'm not sure that that's what Paul is getting at in this text. 
I don't think that the response he's trying to elicit from us is, oh yeah, good, I can't wait to just get out of here and go. I'll just kind of hunker down until then. You see, the task of a Roman citizen in a place like Philippi, northern Greece, was to bring Roman culture, to bring Roman rule to that area. The task of a Roman citizen outside of Rome was to import, to bring, to manifest, to work into that culture, Roman culture, Roman rule, and Roman influence. The task was not to go back to Rome. They were citizens of Rome, but they're supposed to hunker down here and bring the influence of Rome, the rule of Rome, the culture, the qualities of Rome to this place, not just get back to Rome. You understand? So then a Roman citizen anywhere else in the world, and and perhaps especially in Northern Greece, knowing that the the Grecian Empire was an empire prior to the Roman Empire, uh, the... The Roman citizen anywhere else in the world would always feel sort of conflicted. Again, that that tension. Being in a different culture now, but needing to import the culture and the quality of Rome and bring it to bear on that culture. Bringing about and rejoicing in things that were like Rome reminded them of, of their true home, but always longing for the fullness of it. Uh, Like no matter how much they manifested Rome and Philippi, it wasn't going to be Rome. So so they rejoice over the the Romanesque things that they would import and they'd they'd celebrate it and they'd work for it, but there's always a sense of, oh, Rome, where where the fullness of home was. Tension. But even in the midst of that tension and, and that longing for the fullness of Rome, they were never apt to just abandon where they were. It's not as though where they were was then worthless. They weren't supposed to abandon it. It was, after all, in some way, home. It just was an ultimate home for them. And so there was this tension. of uh, They felt like they belonged, but they didn't feel like they belonged. Do, 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 do you see what I'm getting at? They felt like they belonged, but they didn't feel like they belonged. C.S. Lewis said it well. He said, if I have a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the explanation is, I was made for another world. You see, when we are remade in the image of God, remade in the image of God, right? We were initially created in the image of God. The fall of man and sin marred the image of God in us. When we come to faith in Christ and his work on the cross, we're remade. We're made new creations. We're born again. When we are remade in the image of God, we are remade for another world. Colossians 1.13 gets at this idea. It says, he, speaking of God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In other words, when we got saved, there was a zip code change from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. And we now have this longing for our true zip code, for our ultimate home. Yes, it's our home, but it's not ultimate home. When we are remade, this longing is recreated in us for another world. And so then 
being citizens of heaven now, as the text says we are as Christians, being citizens of heaven, we are never quite satisfied and never quite comfortable in this world. And that's by design. We're not supposed to be. If, if we are, okay, if we as Christians find ourselves satisfied and comfortable in this world, if we don't have this sort of holy discontentment that I talked about last week, where we're like, ah, there's more. I, I want more of the things of God. If we, if we don't have that, then maybe we've become too acclimated and acculturated to this world. And you see, I think that happens for a lot of Christians. In some way, we, we've acclimated. It's, it's not where we feel totally comfortable, but we've, we've acclimated. It's not where we perfectly fit, but we've been acculturated. And so we've got to be aware of that. If, if, if we find ourselves content and comfortable here, something is perhaps awry because we're citizens of heaven. On the other hand, if we find ourselves only longing for heaven, that's it. We just, oh, this world, I'm just, just, just disgusted. I just can't wait to go to heaven. If we only find ourselves longing for heaven, then, then perhaps two things have gone right. Number one, we are failing to realize what a gift this life and this world are. As Christians, we should have a stronger sense of that than anyone else. Our daddy created this. And so if we're only longing for heaven, then... We're not fully realizing what a gift this life and this world and each other are, that God has created all things for us to enjoy, surfing first and foremost. And then everything else God has created for us to enjoy. So if you're only longing for heaven, you're probably missing the gift, number one. And then number two, you might be failing to be faithful with your life. You might be failing to be faithful with your life. That is... You're here for a purpose. Your life is not meaningless. God has designed a purpose for your life, that your time here on earth should be fruitful for his glory. And so if, we're, if we just find ourselves longing for heaven, then that old cliche that is silly is probably true of you, that you are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. In other words, you're, you're, you're not living life on mission. You're not living out your citizenship of heaven here on earth. We're, we're to be a colony of heaven, so to speak. A tangible manifestation and taste of heaven in this place. And many of us are missing out on that mission. You see, what the, the way that we need to view culture in the world is this. We need to accept what is common grace, but reject what is antithetical to the gospel. Accept what is common grace, but reject what is antithetical to the gospel. There's a lot of things in creation in the world that are common grace. God's kindness toward humanity. Cool things that he created. Again, surfing and other things. So we want to embrace these things. It's not that we just combat everything in the world. God, God created the world and at one time said it is good. The only thing that wasn't good was for men to be alone. Everything else he said was good. 
right? So we want to embrace what is common grace and a gift of God, but we, of course, reject and deal with what is antithetical to the gospel, what would come against the identity of God, the work of God, the truth of God. We, we, we want to confront that with truth and with love. You see, for the Romans who were now in Greece, it's not that Grecian culture was to be totally done away with. It's just that the qualities of Rome were to be brought to bear on the culture of Greece. And, and that's what we're supposed to do. We're, we're supposed to bring the qualities of Christ in heaven to bear on the various cultures of the world. We're to be importing, dispensing, manifesting, displaying those. Now, for some, especially those who perhaps are not Christians yet and see things a certain way, th this could smack of imperialism right? Imperialism, certain cultures going and conquering another culture and kind of just forcing their stuff on them and generally done militaristically. So this idea of us importing the culture of heaven, of, of who Christ is into the world can seem to some imperialistic. And, and you hear this in their response to us all the time, right? Like, why are you shoving that down my throat? And you're like, bro, I just asked if I could pray for you. I'm not, dude, I'm not shoving, really. But right, you, you hear this all the time. It doesn't matter what you say, that the sense is you imperialistic something. Why are you shoving this down my throat? And so then a lot of the church in America is starting to acquiesce to that. We're starting to succumb to that pressure and say, ah, 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 sorry, sorry, okay, okay. And we're even kind of legislating you know, that Christians should be more quiet now and, and, and workplaces are adopting policy and schools are adopting policy that would say we should be more quiet. And so we're starting to kind of give in and acquiesce and be like, oh, you're right. I, I'm sorry to force my stuff. But here's the deal. Here's why we can't give in to that. It's because we actually do have a message that is true and better. This message of Jesus Christ, the love of God and the forgiveness of our sins through the cross of Christ and being made brand new and given the hope of eternity is really true and better. And so it's not an act of imperialism or pushing something. It is the ultimate expression of love and other-centered kindness to import this, so to speak, into our culture as citizens of heaven. We have the joy and responsibility to bring the qualities of Christ in heaven to bear on earth. Grace, love, forgiveness, mercy, restoration, renewal, so on and so forth. Now what, we, what we've done where we've, we've often misrepresented the culture of Christ, if you will. You see, what, what the American church has done a lot of is we've pushed morals instead of pushing the cross. There's a fundamental failure. Nothing wrong with morals, but you see, the message that we have is not, you need to be better. That's not the message that we have. Allow John Stott to say it, one of my all-time favorites. He says, the gospel is not good advice to men, but good news about Christ not an invitation to do, but a declaration of what God has done. 
That is the message. Yes, inherent in that message is we are bad. We are sinners and that must be communicated. But but to give the whole message, it's all about what Christ has done for us. To to try to push a culture of Christian morals on non-Christians is to miss the mark. Christians aren't even acting like Christians. It's not the message. The message is what God has done for us in Christ. Now, nevertheless, no matter how faithful we are with that message, mission is always going to invite opposition. Mission is always going to invite opposition. I would even say the more faithful you are to that message, the message of the cross, the more opposition you will experience. That was the experience of Paul and the Philippian church here and of others who have been persecuted. Mission will always bring about opposition. So let's return now to our our, our broad cultural analogy of these Roman citizens in northern Greece. Suppose that these Roman citizens in northern Greece got in a situation where, where they were being overwhelmed by the culture and the people of Greece. Suppose they got in a situation where they were experiencing conflict now. That it, it was hard for them to import the culture of Rome because they were in conflict. That, that, that other culture was coming against them and they found themselves overwhelmed. Okay, well, as Roman citizens in a Roman colony, an outpost of the Roman Empire, their best hope at that moment would be that the emperor himself would come from Rome to them and help their situation by further establishing his authority and his kingdom where they were. And that is what Paul is picturing in verses 20 and 21. He is saying that King Jesus is going to do just that. Again, verse 20. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. You see, so there, there is a sense, again, we're getting back to some tension here. There's a sense that, that we are to be a colony of heaven, God's people in the world. And we're to be loving and gracious and taking forth the grace of God and the mercy of God and the kindness of God to draw people to repentance. We have the responsibility and the joy of bringing the life and the rule of heaven to bear on earth. But no sooner do we say that than we realize two things. Number one, that requires our full participation and that will always bring about some opposition. No sooner do you pray the Lord's Prayer than than you see your role in it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You you cannot thoughtfully pray that prayer without seeing yourself as an answer to that prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Citizens of the kingdom. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is that going to happen? But the citizens of that kingdom in the world manifesting those things. Now, the moment we realize that, it's only a moment later that we realize we're not very good at that. Right? We're we're, we're trying and, and we're growing, but we find ourselves weak 
in the flesh, we, we find ourselves failing in our witness. We find ourselves failing in our proclamation. We, we sometimes, in certain cultures, find ourselves threatened in, in light of the message. And, and, and even we find ourselves helpless at times, whether it's through some sort of opposition or, or just the infirmities of life. I mean, people get cancer, people get sick, people... And Paul could relate to that. Paul knew what it was to be sick, to be persecuted, to experience opposition. The Philippians were experiencing opposition. And so in that case, verse 21 serves as the most powerful reminder and encouragement. Again, verse 21, he will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own. Using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. So the Christian is able to say, no, ma- no, matter, no matter how much opposition there is, no matter how weak I feel, no matter how overwhelmed, there is coming a day called the blessed hope in Thessalonians. There's coming a day when the Lord will return and, and, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up in the sky to meet the Lord. And we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. We will be like the Lord and we will be forever with the Lord. That there is actually truly literally coming this day. When this weakness that is so easily afflicted and overwhelmed is transformed into glory like Jesus after his resurrection. And knowing this then would allow the Philippian audience and us as well to hear what is said in verse one of chapter four. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. Stay true to the Lord. Don't don't give up in the face of opposition. Because it's difficult, don't give in. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't give up hope. Stay true true to the Lord. The way that Paul couches it here is a matter of allegiance. He's saying, I I realize that you're in this outpost, that that you're just a colony of heaven, and you're trying to import the culture of Christ into a very anti-Christ culture. And I realize that that's difficult and that you're frail and you're not that bold and you're afraid and you're weak and you're sick and you're overwhelmed by life itself. But stay true to the Lord. It's a matter of allegiance. You're at an outpost, but stay allegiant to the king. And that's really the great challenge of this passage and even this letter. That we would begin to think out what it means to give our primary allegiance to Jesus. What does it mean to be faithful and allegiant to Jesus in a world that is competing for our faithfulness and our allegiance? What does it look like to trust and rejoice in the fact, no matter how much tension and conflict we encounter, that the king is going to come in power, that he is ultimately going to bring his life, his rule, and his authority to bear on the whole world. I mean, how encouraging is that last phrase? He will bring everything under his control. Now, I I don't know what's going on in your life, but that just sounds like music to my ears. He will bring everything under his control. What what, what it's not intended to do is cause me to have sort of an escapist mentality 
that well, I'm just going to hunker down until Jesus comes. Oh, this is gnarly. I'm just going to just hunker down and grab onto my stuff and my kids, my wife, grab my wife, my kids, and just, oh, it's not, that's not what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to just hunker down and cocoon away. Rather, the, the fact that he's coming, he's going to put everything under his control with power emboldens us now. That makes us more bold. That gives us a greater sense of mission, a greater sense of enabling that that same authority that the whole world will be subject to, every knee will bow and tongue will confess, is the authority in which we are operating right now. It doesn't make us escapist. It causes us to, to better engage with culture, knowing that no matter what goes down, the day is coming where Christ will right every wrong. No matter how wrong it is, one day he will right every single wrong. Now, this is a kind of living that Paul's talking about when he says in verse 17, dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine. What a bold statement. He's able to say that because um, scripture wasn't complete yet. The gospels weren't circulated to any degree and there there wasn't this ready model of Jesus. He he was like a living model of what it meant to be a Christian. And he was able to say this because he was a man. (laughs) Paul was a man. I can't say that. I'm not going to stand up and say, live your life like me in all holiness. (laughs) Those of you that know me are like, yeah, don't ever say that. (laughs) But but it's this quality of life that Paul is getting at when he says, pattern your life after me. See, see, Paul Paul lived in a way that, that, that had a strong realization of the truth of the cross and the fact of Christ's coming. And those things held intention, create a certain quality of life that, oh, it's all about the performance of Christ, not the performance of me. I'm fully accepted, even though I've totally blown it. I'm loved and adored. Stuff is really wrong and weird in the world right now, but Christ is coming again. That acceptance and that expectation allow us to live in a very distinctly Christian, profound and powerful way. Paul's saying, imitate that. Now, he wants us to avoid the influence of others that he references in verses 18 and 19. And these were people who were claiming to be Christian leaders. They were competing with the message of the gospel. They were kind of the Jesus and crowd, right? Remember, we talked about circumcision a few weeks ago, the Jesus and, but you better behave this way. Paul says that their lives betrayed, revealed through their conduct that they were actually enemies of the cross, that they had not experienced the transformation of God. And and he wants us to avoid the influence of them in our lives. You see, their behavior was conditioned by their affection for this world and their desire to please themselves. What their ultimate problem was is that they had lesser allegiances, right? This text is moving us to be allegiant to Christ. They were the ones who had lesser allegiances. It says in verse 19 that their God was their appetite. And not just meaning they ate too much, that may have been true, but, but the, the whole appetites of, of, of the flesh. There's a way that you could think about somebody's God. Somebody's God is that which shapes their wants and desires. I mean, isn't this how you know that you've truly come to Christ because your wants and your desires are changed? I'm, right? I mean, if you tell me, that you have come to, to Christ by faith and been born again, but your wants and desires haven't changed, I'm, I'm going to call you out. I'm going to say, no. You know that, that someone or something is your God when they start to shape your wants and desires. 
their appetite, their, their, their sensual passions was their God because everything that they did, every way that they acted out and behaved was trying to please self and satisfy the flesh. And the message here is this, for us, don't, don't be like them. You're a new creation. And by the way, part of, part of your salvation is that in the future, you're going to receive a brand new glorious body. So don't let this one be ultimate for you. Don't, don't let this one rule you. Don't let the things of this world rule you. You're, you're going to get a brand new body and, and, and our citizenship is ultimately in heaven. So don't be ruled by the passions of this life. And then it says about them that their glory was in their shame. They brag about shameful things. And contrast that with Paul, who said in verse three in the New American Standard, we glory in Christ Jesus. Paul's attitude was, if I'm gonna boast about something, it's gonna be about Jesus. If I'm gonna glory in something, like, yeah! It's gonna be about Jesus. And then finally, he says about them, they think only about their life here on earth. This is a matter of where people place their affections. And this is why, why we need to be careful because we can be so influenced by other people that we, we start to place our affections in the same place they do. We, we just kind of can start to love the same things that the world loves. You see, we should enjoy earth more than anybody else. Our dad made it. We should enjoy it with more vigor and zeal and chutzpah than anybody else on earth. But, but we have this holy discontentment where we're like, yeah, this is awesome, but there's so much more. And I'm longing for more. I'm living for more. I'm running for more. I have this expectancy of more. You see, if our affections are too strongly anchored in this earth, then what we'll do is we'll miss the joy of our gospel citizenship will miss the joy of our gospel citizenship that we have been changed by the work of Christ and our citizenship is other, that it's now heaven. We'll miss the joy of that because we're trying to locate and find joy in the affections of this world. And that's just a ripoff. That is a ripoff where so many Christians get stuck. They never learn to enjoy Jesus for all he's worth. And so this longing gets misplaced. And then you're deprived of the joy of your gospel citizenship. Now, when I, when I was thinking about these things this week, I, I thought about, to my shame, how, how easily verse 19 could describe me on any given day. His God is his appetite. He brags about shameful things. And he thinks only about this life here on earth. I, Paul's giving a, a description of some enemies of the cross that they're not Christians. They're enemies of the truth of the cross. And he's telling us to avoid their influence. When, when I read what they were like, I was like, I'm too much like that. I'm too much like that. And it's got me asking, Lord, am I being faithful to my true citizenship? Am I being faithful to my identity as a child of the king in whose kingdom I belong? Or have I become too acclimated and acculturated to the world? It's got me asking that sort of question. And so then I got really bummed out. <laughs> and then verse 19 dawned on me. But we 
are citizens of heaven. It's not, oh, Brit, if you only did better, you could be a citizen of heaven. If you only followed it the right, the right way, performed the right way, said the right things, did the right things, then maybe you could earn citizenship. That's not what it says. It says we are citizens of heaven. I know you feel like verse 19 sometime, but you're actually verse 20. You see, that's the implications of the gospel in our life. I perform like verse 19 too often, but because of what Christ did for me, I'm verse 20 all the time. I'm a citizen of heaven. And so then the goal of life is to just be faithful to that, just be authentic with that. And what that looks like is, verse 20, we are eagerly waiting for him to return as Savior. When you're waiting for Jesus to return, there's just a certain way that you live. When that phrase from Revelation 22, the end of the Bible, becomes your own, amen, come Lord Jesus. It's just a certain way that you live. And again, there's that tension. But we need to ask ourselves, where are you? Are, are you? are you living in such a way and you're so enamored with Jesus that you're like, yes, Lord, come. Balance with responsible citizenship on earth. Or, or now, conversely, kind of turning a corner now, or is your attitude, yeah, yeah, Lord, come, but first, fill in the blank. You see, I, I talk to a lot of Christians who have a, a, a but first. They, they understand that it's a, a core essential of the historic Christian faith that Jesus is coming again. That's like, <laughs> you got to get that. Jesus is coming again. And they want him to come again, ultimately, but first they want to do some stuff. And I talk to young people, they're like, gosh, well, I want the Lord to come, but first I want to experience what marriage is like. I'm like, ah, uh, I want the Lord to come, but I want to have sex. I mean, I've heard people say this, and I, I'm sure that I thought that at some point. And I'm like, sex is awesome, but it's not as awesome as Jesus. Okay, I have both frequently, and I, I just want to tell you, Ooh, TMI, huh? Oh, I feel so creepy. But it's good. It's biblical. I have both frequently, and I just want to testify that Jesus is better. So, you see, I tried to rein it back in. That was so horrible. I apologize for my personal offensiveness. It, if, if your attitude isn't a strong expectation and hope and delight in being with Christ, there's something else that's captured you. You're locating too much of your affection and identity in the world and you're bound for disappointment. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. So is Jesus your treasure because he's in heaven? Or are you, are you caught up seeking lesser treasures, being enamored with lesser things? That, what that keeps us from is the true and actual treasure. Our hearts just get distracted. We've only got so much space. It just keeps us from the true and actual treasure. And then it robs us, once again, of the joy and the reality of gospel citizenship. C.S. Lewis said, prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels he's finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. 
And you see, because we're citizens of heaven, heaven is to increasingly be finding its place in us. And that happens to the degree that we are wanting and trying to treasure Christ. Heaven is finding more and more its place in us. And we have this moreful experience of gospel citizenship. A warning. The more you experience your gospel citizenship, that you're a citizen in heaven, but you try to be faithful with that here on earth, it's going to produce even greater tension. Even greater tension. You're just, you're just, there's just more dissonance between you and the world. But, but even this, dissonance and tension, is going to yield greater joy. Be, because the more you're realizing, I've got a better king than any king in this world. I'm a part of a better kingdom. I've got a better hope than anything this world has to offer and I'm going to a better place than exists in this world. And you see what that does is that allows us to interact with the world in in a better way. So we are to be increasingly experiencing and bringing the benefits of heavenly citizenship now. That that, that sense of privilege that we are the children of God and we're co-heirs with Christ. That, That sense of protection that we are under the king's covering. That higher law, no matter what the laws of the land are, Christ has a higher law, the law of love. We function according to a higher law and and we have a higher calling, right? 1 Peter 4.10, each has been given a special gift. Use it therefore in the serving of one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. A higher calling that we're to be dispensers, distributors of God's grace in this world. We have a better quality of life no matter how difficult things are. We have rivers of living water the life of the Spirit flowing in us and through us. And we have a greater joy, no matter how painful life is. Paul said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So we get to experience, put on display, and dispense the qualities of heaven and of Christ in the world. And, and so the Christian life then should be full of vestiges of the kingdom, expressions of the kingdom, like healing of all sorts, redemption, renewal, restoration, grace, forgiveness. And, and what these things require is that we live a supernatural, spirit filled life. You see, one of the greatest sellouts and failures in Christianity is for a Christian to just live a natural life. We're we're called to live a supernatural life. Whether it's in seeking supernatural healing, salvation for others, a supernatural enabling to forgive those who have hurt us deeply, whatever it is, authentic Christianity is supernatural living. And so as we lay hold of that by the power of the Spirit, there ought to always be these vestiges of the kingdom, this importing of the culture of Christ into every culture that we're a part of. Lord, we ask that you'd help us with that. That you would form in us and show us what it looks like to really live as citizens of heaven. How can we be citizens if we're not there yet? Lord, work this in our individual lives and contexts. Spirit is, I pray almost every week, give give us a, a bigger revelation and glimpse of who Jesus is that we might be more and more enamored, captivated, charmed, and entranced by him. That the things of this world would have 
less of a pull, and that they would be less intimidating. That we would live in the light of your coming, and that would make us incredibly joyful and incredibly bold and merciful in this world. Holy Spirit, work these things in us. Prayer team is up here. Pastors and elders are up here. If you need prayer or help with anything, communion is here. Let's, let's get close to Jesus now.